HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Edible Santa Barbara publisher Krista Harris and baker Sandra Aduzelli. In today's episode, we'll talk to Krista and Sandra about Santa Barbara's bounty, what makes its farmer's market stand apart, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We're back in the foundation's hometown of Santa Barbara, California, celebrating the spirit of this place Julia loved and also called home. This episode was recorded live at Santa Barbara's famed Saturday Farmer's Market. It's one of the oldest running of the new era of California farmer's markets and where Julia often shopped. It's also one of the many reasons she loved Santa Barbara, Born and bred in Pasadena, Julia and her family frequented the Santa Barbara coast for weekend and summer getaways. We're here as part of the return of the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience's 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara, a week-long celebration of the region's food, drink, and hospitality communities. This year's events featured nightly hands-on cooking classes, chef dinners, wine tours, farm tours, and signature events, including a Julia Child watch party with our special guests, Chef Susan Feniger and Nancy Silverton, a Cherry Bomb meetup at the Inn at Maddie's Tavern in San Inez 
spotlighting the region's female winemakers, chefs, artisans, and even a seafood diver. And also the return of the popular Taste of Santa Barbara wines at the historic El Presidio, which featured sips and panel discussions with more of the region's winemakers. Proceeds from the Taste of Santa Barbara benefit the local community. The great thing about a visit to the Saturday morning Santa Barbara Farmer's Market is you get a broad overview and insight into the wider region's produce and growers, all in downtown Santa Barbara. Not only is it enlightening and informative, what you take home is delicious and you'll likely be cooking or tasting something you've never had before. For instance, this year they had green almonds, which I did not know you can eat them raw, right out of the shell. There's no cracking. They're kind of like a fruit. Two people with a deep understanding of Santa Barbara's bounty are Edible Santa Barbara and Wine Country publisher Krista Harris and Gypsy Hill Bakery owner Sandra Aduzelli. Krista and Sandra joined us live at the Saturday Santa Barbara Farmer's Market on May 20th during the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara. On today's show, they share their enthusiasm for the market and all that makes Santa Barbara a must-visit destination. Good morning, Krista. Good morning. So I loved reading, because I am technically a native Californian as well, that you're fifth generation. I am. And that you came to Santa Barbara to go to college after growing up in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I would say this is a story I hear often. You just never left. I know. I'm one of those. So I came to go to UCSB, and uh, I studied film. And afterwards, I was like, I don't want to move to L.A. <laughs> so uh, I decided to stay. And I had, I had worked on the film magazine at UCSB. Oh. Uh, so I did kind of get hooked on magazine work uh-huh. and graphic design and writing. And so I ended up getting a job at UCSB doing the schedule of classes and the general catalog. Oh. Kind of dry. I but, know, yeah, my dad did the class scheduling for my school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just big. Big uh, publications, and uh, but I learned a lot, and uh, then I ended up working for a retirement investment firm. It ended up being their creative director, so writing, design, all of that. But again, not my true love, which was cooking and uh, food and shopping at the farmer's market. So in 2008, I discovered Edible magazines, picked up a copy, and I said, why isn't there an Edible Santa Barbara? Which is funny, right? Because Edible was started in Santa Barbara, right? In Ojai. In Ojai, okay. Very so in close. the region. Oh, okay. Very close. Know. Thank you yeah. for correcting me. Yeah. So was there an Edible, is Edible Ojai the first one? Edible Ojai is the very first Edible that started in 2002. And actually we have um, we have the publisher of Edible Ojai and Ventura here at the market today visiting. Oh, my nearest neighbor. Hello. Yes. Say Hello. <laughs> Manning, the wonderful, one of my favorite things, if you subscribe to the Edible newsletter, Mm -hmm. they do kind of a highlight of the different covers. They select certain ones in a rotation. And I don't know, I just find it endlessly satisfying to look at them. They're beautiful photographs and you get this different idea of what's going on in all these different parts of the country. And you also have this moment of like, they have an edible there? Wow. I know. It's quite fun. It's so funny because people say, you know, oh, you know, you guys are so similar and yet we're such a loosely knit organization. We're all independently owned and operated. But 
we share the similar values, you know, all about local food. And uh, so, yeah, there's such a commonality between all of us. And we get together once a year. Yeah, well, yeah. I wanted to mention two of your leadership roles. One, you serve on Edibles Publishers Council. I do. And then you also very helpfully serve on the Santa Barbara Culinary Experiences Advisory Committee, which all, all of those people are essential to us being able to put on the Taste of Santa Barbara and all our events. So we thank you for your commitment oh. and Edibles Santa yeah. Barbara's commitment to that. Yeah, it, it's really a delight. I mean, this is a an organization that is near and dear to my heart, you know, was celebrating Santa Barbara's culinary scene. And so, yeah, it couldn't be a better fit. It is fun to work with like-minded people. You don't, you don't yes. disagree that much. No, <laughs> no, we like to eat and drink. <laughs> and do it again and again. So actually that's a good segue into the, one of the questions I want to ask you is I always feel like there is so much going on in food and drink and making stuff in food and drink in Santa Barbara, how do you winnow down what you're going to cover each issue? Do you have a, a secret formula or? You know, I don't think it's a very secret formula, but um, I really rely on the passions of our um, contributors, our writers. So we have many freelance writers who contribute again and again to the magazine and new ones coming on. And they typically send me pitches throughout the year. And they are things that they are passionate about. I rarely make assignments. Um, if I know about something that I think is a good fit for a particular writer, I'll suggest it. But I really rely on them saying, hey, I just heard about this and I really want to write about it. So you have a kind of a stable of regular contributors who, so, so basically you just sit back and there's like a pipeline of cool stuff that comes in, but, <laughs> that you, makes still it sound to, easy. but you still have to choose between them, right? I'm sure you're getting pitched more than you can publish. Yes. Yeah, so you still have to make some selections. Yeah. And it, you know, we only have four issues a year, so it's tough um, to get in as much as we'd like, you know, we have to kind of say, Oh, we don't have room for it in this issue. We'll push it off to another issue. And that's and tricky. Do you also publish a certain amount just, that's just web exclusive and not or, or a usually lot. Yeah. Um, together. Yeah. Usually it's maybe some timely things that are web exclusive, but, um, but you know, we sometimes will put the articles from the issue on our website. So if you're looking for a particular article, you can check it out there. So I happen to catch in the current issue, which you can, which you can get here. Which I have here. And uh, also, I'm sure you can get it online if you want to share it with someone who's not here and hold yeah. on to your personal copy. Yeah. Um, I read the Super Rica article. I know. And I learned things I did not know or were different. And uh, maybe since Julia does make a cameo in the issue, I was curious if you could just tell us a little bit more about this story. Well... Here it is. This is the article, and there it's, it opens up with a photo of Julia with Isadora Gonzalez, Izzy. Um, and the story goes that she was eating there one day, and he didn't even know who she was. And someone mentioned to him, and he was like, oh. So he went to the bookstore, and he looked at her cookbooks and was just so impressed. And as she became a regular there, um, there was this photo snapped of the two of them, which is really delightful. And it really uh, helped his business, certainly gave a lot of notoriety. But he was also being written up by the LA Times and, you know, people that go there know the food is amazing. And 
what's so amazing is that he's never stopped innovating. You know, he keeps doing new dishes, new specials. And so we thought it was time to tell that story in the magazine, even though many locals already know about La Superiga. You know, you forget. You forget, oh, yeah, there's new things on the menu. I don't have to just get my same old, same old. No, I, I, I 100% agree because I've been going to Super Rica for years. Yeah. Didn't know nearly half of that. The Julia story I heard does not fit at all. But I'm kind of like, I don't know why Izzy would not tell the story. with. He would have more accuracy than anybody else. So exactly. I'm glad to have that reset. How many people here have been to Super Rica? Yeah? Everyone rate it? Is it worth standing in line? Yeah. Oh. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Not yeah. on the not on tourist weekends, but yeah. I think the key thing is to know that it is worth standing in line and it usually doesn't take all that long. It just if you arrive and you see that line and you've never been, you're like, huh? But it's it's always yeah. worth it. It's a great experience too. Like the whole mm-hmm. way it's done, it's so unpretentious and still the same as it's been on yeah. the outside. So it's good to read in the article that actually the menu is not the same that it's always no. been. No. He, he goes back to Mexico um, regularly for inspiration. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting after talking to him is that he really wants to preserve some of the regional specialties that are at risk of, you know, dying out, you know, because people aren't making them. So that's part of his passion is to preserve those you know, regional specialties, like from Oaxaca and other areas. Yeah, no, and I think his food is is very, feels very authentically Mexican. It's not heavily Americanized. Right. And I also think what's funny, though, all that information, he doesn't, he's kind of old-fashioned enough, he doesn't present it. It's not the kind of restaurant where you get, you know, where the pork is sourced from and where the lettuce comes from on the menu. He's just Mm -hmm. like, Here's a tamale. Here it is. But there's actually a lot of story behind it. So yeah. that's great. Yeah, way the inspiration block. is the regional specialties, you know. Exactly. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the farmer's market. Yeah, Because I also here. saw that you were inspired by it going way back to the 80s when you were here in school. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously covering food, you have an in-depth knowledge. So I was hoping you would kind of share with us, like, what you think is so unique and special about the market. Well, I just remember the first time I ever came to the market and I was blown away, you know, at the the variety and the, I mean, it was smaller back then when I first started coming, but you could get this beautiful spring mix, you know, from Tom Shepard. Which is now common, but then it was like. Then it was, you know, very exotic. And, uh, and so I think that's really, you know, today people come here and they are, astounded by the variety, the things that we have all year long, you know, in January, it can be just as vibrant as it is in May. Um, That's, you know, something that is rare. Uh, You know, not every farmer's market has that, that seasonality. Um, And I think that people want to know where their food comes from in general. So that's why farmer's markets have become such a big deal. And, and do you, is that something, because I think that's something people sometimes miss or, or are, intimidated to do, which is, that's the big advantage of the farmer's market is the interaction and and the conversations you can have. But I think sometimes people don't think they should or shouldn't say anything or, and also a lot of farmers are not necessarily trained in in that kind of communication, (laughs) but how do you suggest people approach that or think about it? Well, it is a social space. You know, when you think about it, walking around here, um, there is a sense of community and that Absolutely. I have, you know, 
mentioned something as I was buying some fava beans and someone says, oh, what do you do with those? What recipes do you do? You know, people share recipes over, you know, their... And the farmers will often, if you ask them, how should I cook this? Especially if you come across something you've never seen before or never cooked before, but kind of looks vibrant and interesting. They're very often... Absolutely. And you can ask how it's grown. You know, you can find out like, oh, what time of year is this typically at its peak? You know, because even though we're in Santa Barbara and there's something, you know, at the market all the time, there are peak seasons for all these fruits and vegetables. So it's nice to get them when they're at their peak. Yeah, I've been having this quandary with strawberries. Oh, this year is tough. Yeah, but also you can kind of get them. You can get them in California all year round. But then I'm kind of like, should you? And are they? Yeah. So where, where do you net out on the Well, the this year has been tough because of all the rain. So, I mean, we love the rain. We love yeah, the fact that we one. had rain. Um, but that did kind of delay the strawberry season. And again, there's a peak strawberry season. So, yes, you might Which be able to. Which in theory should be now, right? Yeah. You might be able to get strawberries everywhere, but you got to wait for there to be the right conditions and the harvest. And so it it is right about now. I mean, I think this year it's a little later than usual and it will continue probably a little later. So I think summer will be a great strawberry time. So, And I feel like the other big thing for summer is, is tomato season. Oh, yeah. If you're not growing them yourself, you have to get them at the farmer's market. Uh, they're just, you know have to be brought to the market when they're picked ripe and delicious. And hopefully this will be a good year for tomatoes too. And so when you're thinking about it, because there's kind of cherry tomatoes can be grown much more year round in a greenhouse. So we're sort of talking about like the bigger beefsteaks and heirloom varieties and stuff that when they're, they're Mm -hmm. just like candy when they're, but you need to eat them seasonally. If you eat them off season, they'll usually be kind of weak and watery and yeah you you don't definitely want to wait till summer to have your tomatoes you know and there some farmers are good at bringing you know tomatoes a little bit earlier you know in the season and they're often great um, because there's so many microclimates that's what you have to remember about Santa Barbara County and some of the markets some of the farmers come from elsewhere yeah uh, neighboring counties so there's lots of microclimates and one fruit or vegetable might ripen a little earlier somewhere else so that's why it's good to ask them. You know, where, where are you guys located? You, you learned something. Yeah. I was amazed at our dinner at, we had a farmer and the cook dinner at Bouchon where we brought the actual farmers who supply the restaurant to talk about it. And, uh, a couple of them were for Lom, from Lompoc. And I think Lompoc is, is up the coast. Um, it is it. It's still Santa Barbara County. I it think. is, yeah. yeah. But it's a microclimate, and it's a very unusual microclimate because what they grow there is very rarely grown seaside, and it's essentially at the ocean. But it's because it must be because of the way the valley both dips, it's a valley, yeah, yeah and right. oriented. But it's still surprising that you would get what they grow in Lompoc right yeah. next to the sea. I know. Yeah, like, it, and it obviously does something good to it. They're so, famous they, for their beans, Lompoc beans. Yeah, they have a really great... Um, yeah, we had uh, snap peas that were delicious. Ooh. So hopefully there's some snap peas still in the market. Yeah. Is there definitely. anything else you've seen either this morning or last week? Or well, you know, week? it's fava bean season right Ooh. now. Um, so I, I've definitely seen some here at the market and uh, those are always fun. You know, And short-lived. Like, I mean, short-lived. you can buy them mm-hmm. frozen. But no, a you fresh fava bean is, yeah. is still one of the few things they yeah. haven't figured out how to grow well, like or or import from Chile or wherever. no. That's so. that's one of those seasonal favorites. Yeah. Do you have a favorite fava bean? 
like way of making well there just there a, so just, happens oh, to I be a recipe <laughs> yeah there's a recipe in our magazine the current issue for um pascal that has a recipe uh, so you could go online or you could pick up an issue here at the market and uh i will just show it to you real quick it's a fava bean crostini page 58 avocado. for those who yeah have for those who are following along yes I'll tell you mine, which I think, I don't know where I got it from. I just do it where I don't like the, I always take the inner skin off. Yes, I do too. Yeah, some yeah. people eat that. I think it, I know. But it's more work to Depends get it. Depends on how old the fava beads are. If they're really young, I think you can leave it on. That's what someone said, but I think they like literally have to have been picked that morning for yeah. that to really yeah, work. Yeah, I agree. So I, I split them. And then if you just do it with a little bit of good olive oil, mm-hmm. lemon juice, and uh, the zest, mm-hmm. and just that salt and pepper heavenly that's all you need that's all you need yeah oh i'm getting hungry (laughs) (laughs) anything else you think people should if they're shopping today look for in the market oh gosh there's so many things and i i i would say go beyond just fruits and vegetables you know um pick up eggs pick up some meat here at the market that's locally raised um nuts there's so many different you know things that go beyond just the fruits and vegetables. And because this market is a certified um, farmer's market, everything that is sold is grown and raised by the people that are here. So it's... And I think as much as uh, this part of California is a produce mecca for the entire country uh, and probably farther afield, I'm sure they export to Canada, it's also a nut-growing region. Yeah. Which is somewhat artificial, but has been working with the climate. And so you get, and certainly the when you taste locally grown nuts that haven't that have been picked so much too they're really heavenly and and yeah. they're, they're they're often expensive but worth it worth totally the worth it yeah and some of them are doing amazing um dry farming and you know ecologically sound practices so yeah check out the nut producers so i wanted to ask you since you're since edibles covering the whole food and drink world. And and certainly I think the other thing we like to bring out is that this is an agricultural region and farming is really important to the region. A lot of people are involved in it. And I think people tend to forget too with winemaking, winemaking starts with farming and growing grapes and any vintner or estate is actually in the agriculture business. And I think that's really important to keep front and center in your mind. What have you, what are your feeling like coming out of the pandemic, how well folks are recovering? Like, where do you think we've sort of gotten to, especially, you know, really hit essential workers very hard in the region. And we're very happy to have the Taste of Santa Barbara supporting the community health centers of the Central Coast and people helping people, San Inez, because those two organizations were instrumental in getting essential workers through the pandemic. Yeah, that is one of the things that is really fantastic about this event is that the money raised is going to those organizations. I think the wine industry in Santa Barbara, you know, it's it's very well known, you know. I mean, we're producing some world-class wines, um, but I think that, you know, people don't always remember that, you know, it's an industry here that, that you know, was affected by the pandemic, workers, certainly, um, everyone. And uh, it, it's good to support the local wines here in Santa Barbara, not only because of the industry and the economic support, but also because the wines truly do go with the food here. So it's a win-win situation, you know, when you support the wine industry. And I, I think that the tasting at the Presidio that'll 
be coming up uh, tomorrow will be a great opportunity for people that might not be familiar with Santa Barbara wines, how huge diversity in different types of grape varietals. And it's just, you know, there's a lot to discover with Santa Barbara wines. Yeah, that's true. For those who don't know, we'll be at El Presidio tomorrow from one to four with a huge number of winemakers from across the region gathered. In addition to being able to to taste wines and as we were talking about interact with the winemakers, there'll also be three or four panels where the winemakers will be talking uh, with Matt Kepman, who's a real expert on both Santa Barbara wine and wine nationally about how they do what they do and what's new. We're going to be covering a lot of, uh, they're not like, trendy trends but the way the business is moving and the way evolving evolving, yeah which has uh, you know wine growing right is really related to climate always has been and now it's just even more so absolutely and just like talking to the farmers here at the farmer's market people should talk to winemakers you know ask questions about the wine how it's grown where it's grown why they chose those varietals and and like you said how the climate change is affecting those varietals that we're growing After the break, we'll hear from baker Sandra Aduzelli. And stay tuned for another Double Julia moment later in the show. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. Joining us is Sandra Aduzelli. Sandra is the chef and owner of Gypsy Hill Bakery. Originally from England, she grew up picking wild blackberries and apples at her family home. In the UK, she did her culinary training at the Colchester Institute and afterwards worked with many prominent British chefs like Jane Smith, B. Vo, Tom Carriage, and Yoda Madalenghi, whom we spoke to back in episode 138. After Sandra moved from London to Santa Barbara in 2008, she reignited her passion for cooking, taking on a multitude of roles as a private chef, pastry chef, and baker, inspired by the bounty available at Santa Barbara farmers markets and beyond. Before starting Gypsy Hill Bakery, she became well-known in Santa Barbara, developing dessert menus for local restaurants, and as the chef and baker at Handlebar Coffee Roasters. So, welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're looking forward to talking to you about your Santa Barbara experiences. And uh, 
But I thought a good place to start was, it's a big move that I've done myself, going from London to Santa Barbara. How, How did that come about? Well, um, my husband, actually, he was, um, he works for Four Seasons, or he used to work for Four Seasons, and um, we did a transfer here in 2008, or 2007, rather, and we moved um, pregnant with my first child, and the intention was to come here for two years, 15 years later, two children and a business. We're very settled in Santa Barbara, so it was my husband that brought us here. And to, does he still work in hospitality? He does work in hospitality, but um, no longer for the Four Seasons. But um, he's still very much an active part of the industry here in town. Great. And um, so I, I talked a little bit about background working in, with chefs and in kitchens in England. How did, when you came here, kind of decide to orient your focus toward baking? Well, I've been a pastry chef, or I've been a chef for many years. Literally, it's all I've ever done my whole entire adult life. And um, I've always loved cooking and the seas- the sourcing of food and everything else. And so I actually did a three-year culinary um, degree in England and where I trained to be a chef. I was 16 when I started, 19 when I left, where I went to work in Europe, in, in Holland of all countries for one year. And then I came back and worked in London for pretty much most of my career, where I started off as a chef. But then at some point I was forced I'm going to use the word forced, <laughs> to work the pastry section. And I just was like, I don't want to do pastry. I was terrible at it. It was a steep learning curve. And the chefs were not very, um, how do we say, encouraging or motivating. But it did, t- it did motivate me to basically learn fast and quick. And I was very lucky to work with some really good mentors who really helped me um, learn about the industry, learn the trade, take pride in my work and things like that. And so I went from being somebody who didn't really like pastry to actually loving it. And it's the irony that this is my career. Well, and I think maybe we could talk about, it's pretty unusual though. I mean, what you're saying is not uncommon. Usually people are either a savory chef or a pastry chef because the mindset behind them is different. Pastry is much less flexible, like just wing it. And so that is, there are chefs, but not uh, who excel, but not many who do both. And so... I'm one of those who does both. And I I love both actually, because I think that um, I love the the precision, the discipline of pastry, but I also I love the creativity of the what savory cooking gives. And actually, when I first started cooking, you know, the, the savory kitchen always looks more fun to me because there was fire and heat and it was speed and pressure, whereas pastry at the time seemed very, well, I don't want really to use the word boring, but it was a very calm it's, environment. It's <laughs> precise and, yeah. and it's very difficult to be good at pastry if you're not capable of being precise. Right. And so, you know, I love I loved the difference between the two things. And I definitely um, looked towards the pastry. And once I actually started to understand it, I really became quite obsessed with it, actually, because I also wanted to get better because I didn't start off very good at it, to be honest with you. And do you, because do you feel like you have like two parts of your brain that like you can turn on and turn off to switch? Because you really do have to switch gears, yeah? Yes, absolutely. I mean, but also I feel like with the savory cooking, because I'm pastry bound, um, I feel like a lot of, I have a few friends who are pastry chefs who are also now savory chefs. And I think because we have that like very focused, disciplined mind, we really, really try hard to do savory cooking really well. So we don't, cut out any nuances and we really we, we work really hard to do it so it just it doesn't come naturally and so but also 
it's more creative because with pastries, sometimes you have to follow recipes and you can't really err off them. And so the fact that you can use, you know, both skill sets is actually, I love it a lot. Right. There's a trick. There is a part of pastry that you can improvise, but it's more in like the tastes and the fillings and things, not the the basics. Or or do you feel like even then you have to really be, you know, get your recipes down even as the baker? Um, I feel like that sometimes you can. Uh, obviously, when it comes to things like liquids and setting and gelatines and stuff, you have to respect the recipes because if you start going too far forward, then things don't set and there can be messy accidents. But I feel like there's also always creativity for doing things like garnishing and things like that. And um, and sometimes the more simple the dessert, I feel like the more freedom you have to be to be more experimental. Well, and also the more simple, the less you can screw up because a simple thing can be delicious, but you can't, it's harder to hide any mistake. Well, I mean, simple cooking is actually the hardest cooking. There's an Italian restaurant in Rome called Rocheli, and actually on the front of the menu, it actually says in Italian that the simpler the food, the harder it is to get right because you have nothing to hide behind it. So, yeah. I remember that when we did the Julia Child Challenge um, show, they had omelets and I was like, is that really going to be a very good challenge? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there's actually a TV show in England where they do the omelette challenge and, and they have all these famous chefs do it and they think they have to do it in under a, under a certain time frame and it has to be, you know, with no colour, perverse in the middle and it's surprising how many chefs actually of very high levels they struggle to do that skill, that task. It's not easy. So I want to just go back to pastry for a second about talking about the precision in it and how do you, do you find that you then take that precision and apply it back to savory and that's actually kind of a helpful discipline or is it is it really you when you go back to pastry it's the freedom that you know is really liberating to do that part um i like the freedom of it the liberation of it but also you know moving to santa barbara and obviously using having an access to like such abundance of ingredients and some things that perhaps you know um we would never have gotten in england i mean like atriums and pluots and all those things so i feel that you can um i like to i like to be in the middle with that you know i mean at some point i don't want to get too technical so it's over you know it's overwhelming or you know also because people need to be able to relate to what you're producing and if it's sometimes if things are too complicated, I think that people actually, it looks too pretty to eat. But the point is to eat it. So you don't want it to look so beautiful that nobody wants to touch it or damage it in any way. I think the other thing, a lesson that, that I really liked from Julia was not having the fear of making mistakes. But pastry is less forgiving for mistakes. But I also think the, the key thing that most chefs, the biggest thing you learn is how to fix your mistakes, because mistakes are almost inevitable because like climate conditions affect it. But how do you apply that to pastry? Is, is there, do you also learn to fix your mistakes or you just learn that what the input is critical? Um, so, you know, making mistakes is how you learn and definitely with pastry, you've, I've made mistakes and you have not been able to rectify them. Sometimes you have to be, accept the fact that you've made a mistake and you need to start all over again. And that's pretty humbling sometimes. And, you know, it's good for the ego. Um, because sometimes you think, I think sometimes that we have a tendency, especially when you're doing it for a long time to think, oh, I got this. And whenever I go to have the approach of, I got this, I always have to check myself and say, actually, Sandra, don't get too arrogant here because, you know, obviously mistakes, and I still make mistakes even after all these years of doing it, and it's humbling. But generally, they, I, sometimes I can repair them, but actually, for me, it's my own personal standard, and if I know that it's not right, then I don't want to serve it. 
I think with experience, though, do you have situations, have you invented a new dish or dessert from being like, I did this wrong, but it's still edible, so I'm going to make it into this? Well, I think that the best dessert for doing that is um, eat and mess. Whenever there's been a meringue disaster, find some cream and some strawberries or any berry, basically, and just mix that together and put it in a beautiful glass. Et voila. <laughs> um, since... Any British person will know what Eaton Mess is, but do you want to just describe it? Oh, sorry, what... Eaton Mess actually is the, probably one of the most famous disaster desserts ever in the UK. It was apparently a dessert that was made for meringues. I believe it was Pavlova, don't quote me on that. And it was invented or made for an event at Eton, which is a very high-end private school. A lot of the British prime ministers have been there. And they, they were going to a party, I believe, and apparently the dessert drops on the floor and the meringue crushed and the cream, and basically they mixed it together, they threw in some strawberries, and it became this famous dessert, Eaton Mess, which for um, every summer, at some point, you'll see it on menus across the country in the UK. It's delicious. And it, it, it's become, like, now it's a dish, so it can be made properly. It's layered, right? That, or not necessarily. Well, I mean, it depends where you're from in the world. I mean, where I'm from, where I've made it, um, Jace, basically, it's a crush. You Literally, you crush the meringue so they're kind of chunky. You semi-whip your cream, lightly sweetened with some sugar, a little bit of vanilla, and then you roughly chop strawberries and mix it all in. And then you let it sit in, like, whatever vessel. Just It always looks nice in a trifle dish, in my opinion. And... And that's how it is. And then you let it sit in the fridge for 10 minutes and then basically you dive in. And it's just delicious. That's what I was confusing with trifle. Because uh, trifle is similar, but is more, oh, a little more formal. Trifle right? is a very layered dish. Yes, nuanced. One and of my favorites. Can you describe how you do trifle? Um, well, trifle, it would be some sort of jelly or jello, as you call it here. Um, but in the UK, we would make it with, well, it depends. If you're doing it from the, from the mother's housewife's perspective, you would buy some flavored jello and you would melt it. And then you would set it on the bottom of the glass. And then you would have some sponge cake, which would be soaked generally in sherry. Us Brits, we do like a tipple, even our desserts. And then you would put some beautiful custard on there, more fruit and cream and sprinkles. And it's quite a festive dish in a beautiful big bowl, preferably with some sort of stand. And that's basically the sort of thing you would have for um, a celebration, Sunday lunch, um, any occasion, really. It's a good way of using up leftovers, actually, if you have, like, cake leftovers, if such things exist in your, in your house. It's a great way of using them up. And it tends to be a spring, summer, maybe early fall, because ideally, because it usually involves fresh fruit. Um, but you can also, I've done it with quince, actually, in the wintertime, and actually sherry trifle, which is one of the popular ones. I mean, you can do it with quinces, which you can poach in sherry and things like that. So it's a very versatile dish, actually, and you can do a number of fruits, whatever you have to hand, really. Well, let's switch to the farmer's market. And I think that's a perfect place. segue. So I know you love the market. What if you were going to attempt Eaton Mess or Trifle this summer? What what would you pick up? Do you think you could use that's in season right now? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I mean, obviously, Thank I've you. not been at the market for the last three weeks. because I've been busy doing other events. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to see stone fruit is back here with gusto. Cherries, apricots, peaches. So my ideal trifle would be something with cherries, which I would probably stone them and poach them lightly in some red wine. And I would probably do something with pistachio, maybe like a pistachio sponge on the bottom. And I would probably set it with some sort of, um, let me think. I probably would do, so something that I really like is peaches and champagne. 
very, very good. If you poach peaches in champagne and the the, the, the flavor that comes out in the in the, the poaching liquor makes a very good jello, which you could set with like leaf gelatine or whatever gelatine you have to hand. With a really nice pistachio sponge, maybe make a little cherry jam. And then I would probably add some chocolate cream and some whipped cream because I love cherries and chocolate. It's one of my favorite combinations. Actually, chocolate, cherry, pistachio, you don't get better than that. If Gypsy Hill was offering that, would anyone want to pick it up? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Looking forward to that on the menu. And tell us a little bit about how, as a baker, you interact with the farmer's market, or is it mostly when you're wearing your savory chef hat? Oh, gosh. Um, I feel that I'm always here looking in every capacity, sweet and savory. I mean, like I just said, that the stone fruit is now in season, and so I cannot wait to get stuck in with doing different things. And But also asparagus is a big favorite of mine. And, you know, we've just got all the snap peas and things like that. I mean, like, I feel like spring has definitely sprung here. Obviously, just bought some fabulous potatoes from Jacob over at Roots, the little... Um, beautiful purple creamers and things like that so at some point i'm probably going to make some sort of vegetable galette when i get home or at some point this weekend with some asparagus with some of the snap peas probably going to have a side of steamed potatoes with some fresh herbs and i do live a little bit of hot smoked salmon from the cheese shop up the road so some sort of galette is going to be happening in my future and can you describe a little bit more when you when you say galette what does that end up looking like um so a very delicious buttery flaky pastry, which will be baked. And there's probably going to be some creamed leeks on top of there, which I, I did buy leeks today. And then a little bit of creme fraiche. And then I like to keep, cook the vegetables individually. So the asparagus, I will probably roast it in the oven for a few minutes just to in, you know intensify the flavor. We're going to blanch those snap peas and put them straight into ice water. And we're going to cut them on the bias so that you can see all the beautiful um peas inside i'm probably going to use some zucchini because i put i put i bought some beautiful yellow zucchini cut it thin on the mandolin and then i'm basically going to put that on top of my flaky pastry i'm going to bake it in a very hot oven for about 25 minutes and then it's going to chill on a cooling rack so we don't know soggy bottoms and um the british love to talk about soggy soggy bottoms bottoms, just so everyone knows well, you know, Mary Berry, she's done a lot for us. <laughs> it's it's a, a widely uh, repeated refrain in the Great British Bake Off. Yes. And, um, and I'm probably going to get some hot smoked salmon from the cheese shop, which I'm going to flake on top of that when it comes out of the oven. With a delicious green salad with some buttermilk dressing, that's going to make a fine lunch or dinner. And I may add some steamed potatoes with that. And... So I'm guessing that then with Gypsy Hill Bakery, you're offering sometimes they're savory, sometimes they're sweet, and they might use fruit from the market, or they might use vegetables in in what you're preparing? I always try to offer a sweet and savory option because I understand that not everybody is wild for sugar and that, you know, I actually have more of a savory tooth than a sweet tooth. So I, one of my most popular things that I do is the vegetable galette and I do it as an individual thing. So you can have it with a fried egg or things like that. But I always, always buy my produce from the farmer's market. It's like, it's how I do business. I also think though, I always say Santa Barbarans are definitely spoiled for choice, which is a Britishism. And uh, I mean, there's no markets that compare and, and you have sort of the best. I mean, how could you not? But it's addictive. Is it is it hard to go shopping if you travel somewhere else and you don't have access to the market? Well, we try not to travel anywhere where there's not a market, actually. Um, we're going to um, England in 
28 days. And um, obviously, Borough Market in London is a very famous market. And actually, London has a lot of great food markets. And as a kid growing up, I have lots of happy memories of being in Walthamstow Market, which is in East London, one of the longest markets in the world, where you would, would sell everything from fruit, vegetables to clothes, suitcases. I mean, it's still going. It's a lot smaller than it used to be. But I mean, as a kid growing up, literally, this was like my mum would go every Saturday to buy the shopping. So it's funny how we've, I've kind of come full circle with my own children shopping here at the farmer's market, but no luggage to buy here yet. Um, but yes, I mean, markets, you know, obviously, I, I have an Italian husband. And so we go to Italy, where again, another country full of markets. So one of my favorite things to do when traveling is definitely to go and find out where all the good food is and where the good coffee shops are. And we basically plan our trip around food and where access to it and how we can eat more food. Well, Italy makes it easier because you can go anywhere in Italy with that. So yes, yes. yes. And that's a great recommendation. I do also, um, as the British say, rate Borough Market. And I think Borough Market, I feel like is easier to find because it's right by the Shard. So if you're visiting, it used to be harder to like, it was a little less on the, you know, kind of tourist path or than it is. Absolutely. I'm watching the rise of Borough Market as a Brit living, watching from the outside in has been quite remarkable. And it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a sensory overload, actually, because there's so many things going on and you want to buy, I say you, me, I want to eat and buy everything. And there's no budget when we go to Borough Market and we come back with so much food and to the point where I'm like, I wish I could take it back to Santa Barbara with me. But then when I go, when I when we're coming to England, obviously we bring gifts back. Honey is a very popular gift for the Brits, as are the Santa Barbara pistachios. My sister's obsessed with them. And so I bring back many, lots of food from Santa Barbara back to England because I have a lot of people who love the produce from here. For sure. All right. That was that was really great too. And yeah, I was going to say you can take you can even take cooking classes at Borough Market. So um, if, yes, you, you, if can. you want yes. to plan ahead, it's really it's a it's a great great place. It's a great vibe. Um, but yeah, and then you could compare and contrast it to Santa Barbara because it is different. It's really leveraging what grows locally in England. Well, absolutely. Well, also Borough Market, a lot of the produce comes from Europe, obviously Spain, Italy, Portugal and things like that, because obviously England as a growing country may be different now because climate change has made England a bit of a warmer country. We can grow apricots now, which we couldn't do when I was a kid growing up there. The wine is getting better. And English wine. I mean, I've had some very good English um, sparkling wines and things like that. Very high quality. So, you know, England as the climate is warming is not you know england is benefiting from some of it yeah it's a bit scary but literally two summers ago when i was there they literally had mediterranean weather and it's actually considered no longer considered a cold country because of the um the um warming climate for another discussion at another Absolutely. time after the break we'll get another double julia moment did you join us at the 2023 taste of santa barbara let us know what you thought about it or about today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. 
So it's your turn, Krista. What's oh, your joy moment? Turn. Yeah. Well, I actually have two moments. That's what people cheat like that all oh, the time. We're terrible, aren't we? Uh, so we're the, happy to get as many as possible. The first moment I have to say is when I was about five or six years old, and uh, my parents let me watch PBS, Sesame Street, you know, all that. And uh, guess who was on after all those shows? Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Julia came on and I would watch it because I, I didn't know that you could even change the channel. And, uh, and besides, she was so interesting. You know, she would talk about food, poke it and eat it afterwards. And it just seemed like a delightful thing, uh, which completely mystified my mother. She was like, you're watching a cooking show? <laughs> yeah, because in many ways it seems very adult, and it's very having watched it at the watch party last night. It's it's very instructional, but Joy is just so entertaining. Yeah. So fast forward to uh, many years later, living in Santa Barbara, and uh, one of my favorite places to go for breakfast was D'Angelo's. We knew the owners, Lou and Eric, and one day we were sitting there eating breakfast, and we had the the inside corner table, cozy table. And uh, Lou and Eric came up to us and they said, Krista, Steve, do you think you would mind moving to the outside? There's, there's no tables available inside and Julia's coming. She was a regular there. Uh-huh. And we were like, of course we would. So we got to meet her briefly and give her our table. And then we happily ate breakfast outside that day. It was probably a day like today, kind of foggy. <laughs> And uh, was Julia by herself or was she, no, was she, she with Stephanie? She was with uh, a couple people. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think Stephanie was one of them, but there were, yeah, she was with, so they needed that corner table in the back, <laughs> which we were happy to provide. That's very gracious of you. Yes. And I guess memorable. It was. It was the only time I met her in person. So, but obviously she's been a big influence. Um, you know, I just feel like she can be a role model to so many different types of people from all backgrounds, all ages. Well, Krista, thank you so much for joining us this morning at the Farmer's Market and on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Do you have a Julia moment for us, Sandra? I actually do. And so you're right. I did not grow up knowing a lot about Julia Child. And it's amazing how the internet has completely transformed the way we receive information. Because, And actually, my Julia Child moment is I was working my last restaurant before we moved to Santa Barbara, a restaurant called Le Café Anglais in Bayswater. And the chef was Roly Lee, who is a very esteemed chef in the UK. And I was his pastry chef and I'd had a very tough interview to get the job. And the first day, day one, we, we built the restaurant from scratch. So I was part of the opening team. And day one, he gives me some papers because he, here are some of the things I want you to make. And I was a bit bristly about that because I'm the pastry chef. I don't you I get to choose what we do on the menu. But obviously, you know, he's a very respected chef. And so I was like, okay, yes, chef. And one of the recipes was Rain de Saba. I'd never heard of it, and I'd never heard of Julia Child. I'm almost embarrassed to say, but this also was in the, well, early 2000s. And I think we were just about had internet, perhaps. I can't even remember. It feels like it was also always part of our lives. But at some point, there was a time I remember it didn't exist. And I feel like I went home and did a Google search to find out who she was, and all this information came up. And I was like, wow. Okay, she's got quite the body of work. And I really, I had, I'd never heard of her. And so we ma- I made this dessert. And Chef Roly Lee has some very particular ways of how he wanted it served. And so the first time I made it, I didn't do it right. And he told me so. 
And I was like, okay. I went back. You know, one of the things about me, if I don't have to do something, I will go back and I will find a way to make it right. We did it again. And when you covered it with the chocolate and I just was like, oh my gosh. And then we served it with some creme fraiche as a dessert. And it was a very simple presentation. Big white plate, beautiful slice, perfect slice of this Randy Saba with a beautiful quenelle of creme fraiche. And I just was like, wow, this is amazing. It's so moist. It's so flavorsome. I think we actually swapped out the almonds for hazelnuts. And we did a little riff on that. And it actually became one of my most favorite things to make. And I'm so glad that I kept my bristling opinions to myself. <laughs> wow. And yeah, just maybe just for those who haven't had a Renda Saba, it's kind of a Julia's signature thing, but she didn't invent it. It's very traditionally French. And it's it's not exactly a flourless chocolate cake, but it's close to it, it's right? Very, it's almost gluten-free. I mean, Randy Saba translates as the Queen of Sheba, and it's a very rich, dense chocolate cake that almost, it has almost like a brownie consistency, I would say. And it has some um, ground almonds folded in. And I believe, I have not made it, but actually I made it last year. But I believe you fold in some egg white to keep it light. And then it's cooked. It quite, there's quite a cooking technique to it. And it's actually, it, it's easy to mess up because I think it seems so simple. And that was my first mistake. I underestimated how simple it was. And I tried to do, I was too chefy with it. And at some point I had to dial down the chefy and just be like, okay, and and it's just very it's very sublime and you have like a chocolate coating over it and basically it's really rich and so the creme fraiche just helps cut the richness of the chocolate and it's just delicious because it's only about four or five ingredients right to yes it's a very simple cake actually but it's oh one of my favorites actually i might go home and make one now i was gonna say is it, are we gonna see it in the gypsy hill bakery repertoire or do, do you find it's hard to serve in the pop-up formats that you do um, in the format that I do, it's hard because obviously everything is packed. Everything is packaged and put in boxes. But I did do it last year for the Julia Child dinner that me and my other partner in cream, Pascal Bill, two baking Brits, we did a Julia Child dinner, um, inspired dinner last year, where that was the dessert, actually. Great. And I think uh, you're going to be over at the Cherry Bomb event this afternoon now? Yes. Um, once I finish my shopping, I'm going to be heading up to the Valley and we'll see me at Cherry Bomb. I'm very excited. We're excited to have you there. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for being a part of the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara. Well, thank you so much, Todd. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us live at the Santa Barbara Farmer's Market. We'll see you next year, I hope. We hope you enjoyed our latest show recorded live on location in Julia's beloved Santa Barbara, where the foundation is based. To stay up to date on future plans, for the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and next year's Taste of Santa Barbara, May 13th to 20th, 2024. Make sure to follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram or go to sbce.event on the web to sign up for the email newsletter. For more, check out at Edible Santa Barbara on Facebook and TikTok and at Edible SB on Instagram and Twitter. You can access the latest issue, including that article on Julia's connection to the renowned La Superica Mexican restaurant on EdibleSantaBarbara.com. Just click on Read. For Sandra's latest offerings, it's at Gypsy Hill Bakery on Instagram and Facebook. Please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. 
We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.